Hello and welcome to Media Democracy. It's a podcast about politics, the media and the politics of the media. My name is Dan Hind and I'm joined as ever by my co-host Tom Mills. Hey everyone. Tom, we have been off the air for a little while. What have you been up to and what's been going on? Well, a lot's been going on. We've had the the World Cup, um, which England probably will have crashed out by the time you're listening to this, but that's been fun so far. Um, what we've been doing, I've just been um, marking for weeks on end, and then I had a little holiday, and now we're back. Um, I'm fresh. Um, what have you been up to? You you had more than a little holiday. We went to Barcelona, I put it to you. I did, yeah. No, it was lovely. It was almost as hot as it was in the UK. <laughs> you probably you probably drank frothy coffee and, and ate like acorn-fed pigs in ham form. Yeah. You are, you're out of touch with the real England, Tom. Um, yeah, no, I, but I'm in touch with the, with the real um, Catalonians. You're in touch with the real tourist sector of Catalonians. It is incredibly touristy, but it, it is a nice place actually. And actually, I didn't. I don't think I had any frothy coffee while I was there. Oh but yeah, what I did no, really yeah. Was like I did the thing where you're on holiday, so you can kind of have a beer at any point. At any and, point um, in time. They, they they sell like little the little coke sized cans of beer everywhere there, so. Um, I, I just got on that really. It's like a soft like drink, that's what you say. Um, well, I have been writing a, uh, a piece on constitutional design for uh, the next system project in Washington, um, and that's kept me kind of busy. Um, but that is, uh, I've sent a draft to them, so hopefully that will appear later in the year. Um, and and I believe you're you're a fellow there, aren't you? Yes, I am. I am a research fellow at the Democracy Collaborative. Um, which is something I don't like to tell strangers at the drop of a hat. Um, which is why I mention it. You know, or, someone's got a um, sticker well, phrases on it. It's not like I, want, I like to scroll. <laughs> you need a prod in the right direction. <laughs> I scrawl it on walls with chalk in my hometown. Um, but yes, that's, uh, that's what I'm up to at the moment. Now, we, this week, uh, we're very lucky to be joined by Matt Kennard, who is a journalist and author. He's written two books including, um, as we'll, we'll talk in, in the interview at some length, uh, a book called The Racket. Um, we recorded that, that interview earlier today on, on Friday, the day before um, our England showdown with um, Sweden, uh, the result of which will determine whether English nationalism is A, good, or B, bad. Um, so without further ado, we're going to roll tape and play our interview with Matt Kennard. Joined now by Matt Kennard, who is the author of two books, Regular Army and The Racket. Regular Army was published in 2012, and The Racket came out in 2015. Um, Matt has been investigative journalist and a staff writer on the Financial Times, I believe. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's a great pleasure to, uh, to have a chance to chat to you today. Um, Matt, what I thought we would do to start off with would just to sort of kick off by talking a bit about your background, how you came to write A Regular Army, which is a, a book about far-right infiltration of the US um, military, 
Um, and then your 2015 book, The Racket, which obviously comes out of your experiences working in the financial press. So tell, tell our listeners a, a bit about your background. Tell us a bit about how you came to, um, to work on your first book. So how, how, did that, how did that sort of come to? I know you, you did a, a Masters at Columbia, I think. Is that right? Yeah, I guess the conceit of that book actually started earlier during my undergrad. Uh, I was a student at Leeds University. Right. And in my final year there, I published um, a big investigation of a professor there who turned out to be a white supremacist um, and had attended white supremacist conferences in the US. And that actually became quite a big scandal and got in the national papers while I was a student. Wow. Uh, and then and then he, he had to leave the university. It was... Involved the police and all sorts. It got it got quite a big story on campus. Um, so I, um, after that, at that point, I didn't even know if I wanted to be a journalist. Or before that, I didn't know if I wanted to be a journalist. And then when I saw the impact that investigative journalism could have, uh, evidenced by that story. Yeah. And him Matt, Matt, how did you come across that story then? How did you discover it? Well, I had seen that um, there was a story I think in a local paper about him going to a conference in the US by a group called American Renaissance, who still exists. They're sort of white supremacists. They're not quite neo-Nazi, but they're but they're basically neo-Nazi, but they don't they don't quite have the same uh, image as the neo-Nazis in the States. But then, so it wasn't quite it wasn't the biggest a biggest scandal as it should have been. Right. But anyway, he went along to that, so I thought maybe there's something there. So I went I, I organized her interview him. I just said I wanted to interview him for the student paper. I didn't tell him what what about. So I start. He was he's former SAS. So I started talking to him about his career uh, and Russian literature because he was very into Russian literature. So this and then is a British a British academic, is it? Yeah, he's called Frank Ellis. Um, he uh, he's written a few books as well. Um, and he he made, uh, once I softened him up a bit, to be brutally honest about it, I started asking him about his views on race. Right. And he basically came out uh, in favour of the bell curve and said that he believed that there's a, a IQ differences ge- uh, genetically between races and a lot of really unsavoury stuff. He said the BMP were a bit too socialist for his liking. Um, uh, and we, I, I mean, and he made awful comments about HIV and Africans and I mean, just really awful sort of racist stuff. So I published that in the in the student paper over six pages, uh, and it became a big scandal. And then, yeah, at that point, I'd actually I got involved in the student paper because of the war in Iraq. It was back then, right? Uh, and I've become really politicised by that. And I was covering the the demos and stuff for for the student newspaper, and so and I was doing interviews. And actually, that was why this interview came up. So I was like, well, I might as well interview him as well as as I'm doing all these other interviews. And so when that came about, I thought, well, actually, journalism obviously is a really powerful way to affect change so I thought I should apply to some of the journalism schools on the back of that I got into Columbia um, and actually my experience in Columbia was really instructive because I imagined going to Columbia which is the journalism school is seen as the elite journalism school in the world I thought it would be a really intellect interesting uh, vibrant intellectual environment yeah and in fact it was nothing like Leeds to that extent at Leeds I've been exposed to all sorts of ideas uh, from the left and the right um, and it was a really vibrant environment to 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 discuss the war in Iraq, to discuss uh, politics theory. And in Colombia, it was the total opposite. We had it, everyone was extremely competitive. Yeah. Uh, no one really asked any questions of of powerful figures 
because they basically knew that they these were this is the breeding ground for the corporate media, so they were being prepared to ask softball questions that you see on cable news all the time. And in fact, a good example of that was Henry Kissinger came to give a speech to the, at the journalism school, and and people were asking him questions like, "What's your favourite colour?" and "What do you think?" <laughs> what was his favourite colour? Um, pink. Was it black? Oh no, red. Red for blood. Oh, red. Uh, no, um, and things like, uh, "What do you think of China's human rights record?" This was at the time of the Chinese Olympics, and they were saying, "What do you think of their human rights record? Should they be allowed to um, right. host the Olympics?" And I'm sort of standing there thinking, "This is Henry Kissinger, one of the major mass murderers of the 20th century," and no one. So in the end, I put my hand up and said, "How do you sleep at night?" <laughs> and, uh, and it was, uh, and the whole place went quiet. He said, what do you mean? And I, was, <laughs> and I, uh, I sort of froze a little bit, but I said, well, Chile in 1973, Bangladesh, uh, Vietnam, and the US, I said, I don't know what websites you have been reading. And then actually, one of the guy behind him, who was like the dean of the school, had got up and stood next to him and made it clear that I should shut up. And then yeah. I, I walked out after that. But that was an example. Everyone after that thought I was... Uh, sort of look attention seeker yeah uh had really discreet in fact one of the teachers said i heard you disgraced yourself the other day one of my professors so that's their attitude towards uh power they they thought that this was outrageous because uh henry kissinger was this, this sort of fetid old um diplomat and uh grandfather of yeah. american diplomacy yeah. that should be respected and it's just but like it's, it's you wouldn't have like, got that in the needs so you uh, so i started to see that i mean i'd read chomsky and stuff beforehand but everything i saw an elite institution really was evidence of everything I've read in, in, in his books, that, that the, the, the higher you go up the ideological um, hierarchy, the narrower the points of view you can have become. And another example of that was Amy Goodman came to give a speech, uh, which was good, and I love Amy Goodman. She said, during the, she said how many people here have heard of the uh, genocide in Armenia? And everyone put their hands up because it's a massive deal in the States. Um, and then she said, how many people have heard of the genocide in East Timor? And no one put their hand up. And she said, it's very interesting, isn't it, that a, a class full of the elite journalists, or the, tomorrow's elite journalists, know everything about a genocide in the early 20th century that America had nothing to do with, but know nothing about a genocide that was armed, supported by your, in your, by your own country in recent history, uh, yet, you, yet you know nothing about it. And that is very, and I thought that is very uh, instructive of, of the intellectual community uh, environment that exists uh, at elite American universities. That is an amazing story, the Henry Kissinger one. I just find him like just an, just an amazing figure, but it, it is symbolic of that kind of conformity that he's, you know, it's just sort of this war criminal at large who gets shuffled around and treat, treated like he's a sort of sage old statesman. It's just, yeah. it's just phenomenal, like, you know, the, just the Henry Kissinger phenomenon, I think. But it's almost, it's almost like he was wheeled on as a test, right? In that, yeah. like everyone. But that's the thing. He, he's there's something sort of cartoony baddie about him, isn't it? I mean, that's why I was like, his favorite color's got to be black because he's just like right. Prince of Darkness. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. He committed himself to just sort of destroying countries, and yet somehow, you know, it's sort of yeah. I mean, what is the basis of people thinking that he's a great kind of intellectual? Well, I've just finished reading the Seymour Hirsch memoir. And he was on, he talked all the time to Henry Kissinger, and obviously he hates Henry Kissinger, and he wrote a whole book about how awful he is. But he was in the New York Times Bureau uh, in Washington, D.C. at the time of Watergate, uh, and he was talking about how Henry Kissinger was just in, insanely charming to all the reporters in, in the Bureau, and uh, uh, other people working with him would talk to him every day, and he'd 
and he'd charm the pants off them. And he's very, very good at that. And I remember when I was at the FT Bureau, um, that the Bureau Chief had just brought out a book about China, and he said he went to a dinner party, and uh, Henry Kissinger uh, went up to him and started praising his book, and just being, he, he's got this really unctuous, charming way about him. And he's managed, I mean, in his day, he was charming of all the, uh, the, the journalists, but of course, also, he's, he's not in power anymore, and, and he's not, uh, the crimes that he committed when he wasn't, was in power aren't known about. So most of the journalists, at, literally, most of the journalists who, uh, who were at Columbia would not have known what he did. They'd have no idea. Oh, it's interesting what you say about personal charm, because that doesn't really come across from the TV, so... No, I know, I don't get it either. He is like a pantomime villain, especially it's yeah. like... He's got that uh, that German accent from when he was a kid that's just yeah. sort of got that pantomime villain sort of tone to it, but, yeah. yeah. So, D- Doctor Strangelove as well, isn't it? Can't, you can't help but be reminded <laughs> yeah. of... Yeah, well, that's the thing. Yeah. You know, he is he is a bit of a gruesome um, villain, isn't he? Anyway, enough on Henry Kissinger. Yeah, it's anyway, the same. so I was explaining. So, yeah, so I, I, while I was at Columbia, I, I had a history of, of looking at the far right. Um, I've done that work, as I was saying, at Leeds. Yeah. And then I was really interested in the war on terror, basically, at its height when I arrived, which was in 2007. Uh, and the insurgency was huge. There was, uh, there'd been a, a recent um, a deployment of more troops by the Bush administration. So, uh, And at the time, I, I, I saw lots of stories flying around that they couldn't recruit enough troops, but they they would not institute conscription because they knew what had happened in Vietnam and that had been basically the, the shift that um, had turned everyone against the war and it uh, really helped the anti-war movement was conscription because all these young boys were getting sent off. So they basically, instead of, uh, in the absence of conscription, which they knew wouldn't work because the war was too unpopular, they uh, they were loosening regulations. Now, they, they were doing this publicly with things like weight and age and a sort of uh, benign things, like, or generally benign things like that. So I thought, well, if they're doing it publicly with that sort of stuff, they must be doing it uh, with other things that they're not telling us about. Right. Uh, so, I, so I started looking into neo-Nazis and the far right and thinking, well, I know there's regulations on them. You can't get in with a swastika tattoo, for example, but I wonder if that's being enforced now or it's being pulled up in, uh, caught up in this same sort of uh, uh, burning of regulations, which they were doing. So I called up a few of the Nazi organizations in America, which you can just do that. They have websites and things. Uh, and they all said the same thing. They were all saying, yeah, well, you know, since the war on terror, we've been fine. We just send our recruits in. They, we get free training. They go out to Iraq and Afghanistan. They come back knowing how to use an M16. Uh, and now we can prepare for the race war back in the US. So I thought, okay, well, this is probably a good story. So I started looking into that, did that for a year, published it in Salon, and then was contacted by a publisher to, to write a book about that. Yeah. Uh, and I realized quite early on that that wouldn't really carry a whole book. So at the, in the end, the regular army was a look at lots of different, although the top line was the neo-Nazis, because obviously it was the most controversial and inflammatory. Yeah. Actually, um, a regular army looks at lots of different groups that were franchised from the, by the war on terror, from Nazis to gang members to criminals to actually gay people, which was a funny sort of ironic uh, aspect of the war on terror, which was under the Bush administration, uh, and don't ask, don't tell. They had their best. They had their best experience in the U.S. military uh, because the, the U.S. military just couldn't afford to um, enforce don't ask, don't tell. Um, so yeah, it wasn't really. It, it was basically a, a policy which didn't recognise ideological references at all. Right. It was just right. a free. Yeah. That makes a great deal of sense. Um, uh, okay, so. 
you wrote up Irregular Army while you were working for the Financial Times, I think. Um, yeah. So when did you join the FT? So I came back to London. Uh, I worked at Moxie now for a while, uh, about a year after I graduated uh, and worked on the side and did an internship that was unpaid and then I couldn't get work there. So I came back to the UK um, and thought, well, there's not many places really you can do investigative journalism anymore. I should just apply to some newspapers. So I applied for the traineeship at the FT and surprisingly got it. Uh, and then... Um, wrote a regular army actually while I was doing market reports because I was so bored by them because at the time I had written a, a proposal and it hadn't been accepted by the publisher and I sort of thought well as I'm writing market reports all day every day which is killing me I might as well focus on trying to get a publisher for this yeah so um, yeah and then Verso eventually published it um, and it got quite a lot of press in the States it did, did do quite well because actually just before it was published there was a, a, a massacre at a Sikh temple um I don't know if you guys remember that in 2012. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, to be fair to the FT, they did give me the time off to write it. They gave me a couple of months as well to write it. Right. And then right. I, I said thank you by writing an expose of the Financial Times. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's get on to that. Um, so you're working for, for the FT. You're, you're, you do the traineeship with them. And then you, I guess you start to get sent out on assignment to places like, um, like Haiti, is that right? Like where, sir? Like Haiti. Yeah, yeah. And so, and yeah, just go. just talk talk us through the process of of like disenchantment or or realizing that the FT isn't a place where you can really survive. Like, are, are there key moments along the road? Yeah, I think. I think I knew quite early on because I was initially initially my beat was mining, right? And the first story, and I I basically I never changed. I have to say, like when I went in there, I didn't. There was not a moment where I started doing what I was meant to do, which is why I was never going to stay. But when I started, my first story for the Financial Times was about how many miners had died in right. the previous five years, but uh, in the mines of the five biggest UK listed companies. So I mean, and it, they published it, and that was, uh, and there were. It's a weird thing with the corporate media is that part of the reason they don't publish any critical articles is because their journalists don't write them. It's not that the editors wouldn't actually put them in. It's just that no one ever thinks to write them. So I just carried on as I would uh, and kept writing. I wrote. Uh, eventually, I was sent to the states and I wrote stories about the Na uh, Native American um, reservations and um, cuts to benefits and all sorts of uh, socially interesting stories or socially important stories, well, at least I thought they were important, and they published them all. But it, I, I wasn't offered a job at the end of it, and I don't think that was exactly what they were looking for, but at the end of the day, they did publish them. But I knew that if I was going to carry on doing that, I'd never have, there'd, there'd be no place for me. So it was kind of, I mean, to be honest with you, I saw my, at some point, I probably about a year in, I knew that I wasn't going to stay there and just thought I should start collecting as much information as I can on the inside because I'm never going to be in this position again and in that sense I sort of felt a bit like a whistleblower to that extent you know so I, 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 there's never going to be a moment I'm going to be on the inside I should use the advantages that come with being an FT journalist which are huge I mean when I was in New York and uh, Washington I could literally call up any senator or congressman uh, or anyone on Wall Street and get an interview immediately because I said I was from the Financial Times you'd never be able to do that with pretty much any other publication 
Mm-hmm. Maybe the New York Times, but I think even the New York, I think the FT is still even more than any other newspaper has this uh, cachet that, that uh, the political establishment want, want to get in it and want, want their views to be put across. So that was an amazing uh, resource, which I used massively. And in fact, the racket is full of interviews with um, officials, ambassadors, yeah. senators, that sort of thing. So That's I think in answer yeah. to your question, I knew quite early on that I, didn't, I wasn't going to stay. Yeah. But I, I used my time there as wisely as I thought I could before they finally kicked me out. I mean, the reason why they're so keen to talk to the FT, I guess, is because they know it's the it's the newspaper that their donors read. Um, exactly. Yes. So Peter uh, Manderson said it was the most important newspaper in the UK. Yeah, yeah I would argue yeah. it's probably the most important paper globally. Right. Because there's not really, like, even the New York Times or the Washington Post. They're read. They're more important in the states. But if you're talking like in China and places like in Asia, everyone reads the FT as well. Yeah. So yeah, and if you are an elected official. Being being quoted in the FT is uh, is massively valuable publicity in terms of yeah, raising exactly. your profile with with um, if you're looking for billionaire backing, um, yeah. which the podcast is looking for, by the way. So um, we're not <laughs> shutting the door on that. Um, but um, so that's interesting. So you because a lot of people I think who find themselves in these sorts of corporate environments and become increasingly disenchanted by them experience they experience it actually as a kind of personal distress but from what you're saying actually you never you never really went out of your way to fit in to their ideology it's not like you had a go at fitting in and didn't didn't make the cut you you would you would already establish that that you weren't going to go along with this exactly and it's exactly what you said. I think that a lot of people do end up going along with it and it, it would make you depressed. I mean, I, I did feel depressed at points there, just generally because it, was a, it wasn't an environment I didn't, that was at all fitted me as a person. Right. It was very sort of corporate um, and very PR-y. You know, you're talking to these people that are really fake the whole time. They're your friend one minute and then they, they don't speak to you the next when you're not on that beat. It just, I just found it this impersonal flavour really horrible. But I was saved basically by knowing I was never going to stay there and maintaining that sort of like, can I swear on a podcast? Yes, you can. Maintaining that fuck, fuck you attitude, you know? Yeah, exactly. That was magic because uh, it suddenly went echoey when you said that. It was like we yeah, I know, a... and then I agreed with myself. <laughs> <laughs> if you all swear, do it properly and um, in a weird echo chamber. Get a bit of reverb. <laughs> Get a bit of reverb on it. Um, yes, you can. You can stick it to the man. We, we, can add, we need to start adding reverb to all swear words. If we, that's going to be a little work for me. I think it would be worth doing, actually. Definitely. Um, um, sorry, where were we? Uh, so, yeah, so I, I maintained my sanity by just knowing I wasn't going to stay. And even I took the piss at points, I have to be honest. Like, I invited the, the vice president of Bolivia to talk at the canteen to the NEJ. Uh, <laughs> and I got in trouble for that. <laughs> Alvaro Garcia Linera. Uh, and I mean, yeah, I was I, I was never ever going to stay. I didn't change who I was, and that is actually quite interesting to because you know what they do that if you don't conform, then you start getting called things like I was called a maverick and all that sort of thing. They said, "Oh, you're not really like one of us." Sort of yeah. thing. And in fact, yeah. even, I, I haven't said this publicly. Even on my final day at the FT, the editor said to me, called me in, and he said, "Look, you're a good journalist, but you're not an FT journalist. Um, go away and do your save the world stuff, and maybe you can come back when you're a bit older." And I sort of thought, what the fuck? 
you know like that is but that's basically what it is it's this idea that uh, if you're if you're idealistic or you believe in something different to the corporate consensus yeah. you it's immaturity it's this idea that oh you when you're a bit older you'll understand that this is the way forward that's and i sort of understand it because yeah. i was young i was 24 i don't i didn't have a mortgage i didn't have kids yeah i could be more reckless yeah but if you're say if you're 35 you have a kid you have a mortgage there's, you, you can't you can't be like I was. You'd have yeah. you kind of I can understand why people get locked in a lot more because if the choice is between having no job or maintaining your uh, and maintaining your principles or not having a job, you know, it's like it's, it's it's a hard choice to make. So I was kind of saved by the fact that I was young enough and uh, cocksure enough at that point that I didn't need to. I didn't really care if I wasn't there anymore. Yeah. And the other point is what as well is that people get locked into the status because. If you go at like at that point, like if you as if you go to a party or something, yeah, and you see you're an FT journalist, everyone's like, "Ooh, that's really like cool." Yeah. And I think people get that. I think that's quite addictive. I think people start think like, and to give that up is seen as a bit a bit crazy. When I left, people were like, "Are you sure you want to leave the Financial Times? Like, does it get better than that sort of yeah, thing?" Yeah, so I'm all these sure things really lock people into a system that actually makes them unhappy, as you say. Um. Now. What I think, what I think our listeners would benefit from, Matt, really, would be a um, almost like a pitch from you for for the racket. So just like talk us through the talk us through some of the argument of the book, um, so that people can because we've we've sort of talked around it. But but what you know, what's the actual summary of what you're arguing in that book? That everything you're told about how the global economy works is a lie, essentially that the whole system is rigged to pull money from the poor world to the rich and has been since time immemorial, basically, and that huge amounts of layers, many, many layers of ideology are built onto this system of rapacity uh, to, to justify it to the world, to people who read newspapers, to journalists. And the racket, how I intended it, was to try and puncture a lot of that uh, ideology because it's it's very powerful and in fact they've got all the money so they can there's uh, thousands of think tanks that, that produce reports which feed into this ideology but in fact it all it all it is is to justify a system which uh, creates the world that we live in that's the other thing is this idea that the world is like it is is some sort of mistake mm-hmm. and it's like the world is the world that we live in is is, is a result of, a, of 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 the policies which have been in place. Um, since we started, since imperialism began, you know, we're not we're not in foreign countries for charity. We never have been, and we know we we might be one day. Jeremy Corbyn becomes uh, prime minister, but we we the, the system is structured for us to exploit uh, the rest of the poor world. Um, so that's that's and, and obviously that's there's a lot of academic literature about uh, analysing this sort of stuff in the Marxist tradition and others. Mm-hmm. I wanted to do it from a, a journalism point of view. So I made, I wanted to go to all the different countries that were being exploited and see the systems that were being used to um, to exploit them. So I went, as you said, I went to Haiti for the Financial Times. As I said, got huge amounts of access to the World Bank, the US ambassador, talked to them all about how they plan to restructure uh, Haiti, and they were—they're very candid because they trust you. If you're a journalist for the FT, they don't think you're uh, a socialist or a Marxist or, or, right, how, uh, or a leftist on, on the same team, right? Yeah, exactly, exactly. That's it. They think you're on the same team, so they're always surprised. That, I mean, not that probably any of them ever heard about the racket, but 
they would they were they would always be surprised when they read articles that I produced because they wouldn't just be parroting what they told me. They would be I'd put critical voices in. Uh, for example, in Haiti, I put in uh, quotes from people who were saying that Haiti had slave slave wages, which is true. And that, but the, the U.S. ambassador was saying that actually the the fact that they pay them next to nothing is one of the biggest draws for capital to come here, and that's what we need. We need foreign investment, and that's the big ideology that I was talking about. Is that all problems can be solved in the developing world by foreign investment. So Haiti was one example. Bolivia was another one. I think the longest chapter in the racket is about Bolivia because I went there uh, in the middle of Evo Morales' term to understand how the US was undermining a democratic socialist revolution, uh, which was enacted at the ballot box, but was was upending 500 years of uh, oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this was super inspiring. And that was, I think, that of all the places I've ever been, uh, to try and understand how U.S. imperialism and Western imperialism works, Bolivia was the most interesting case because you saw all these different agencies, just endless acronyms from USAID, CIA, any National Endowment for Democracy, just countless. And they're all there to spread freedom and help civil society. But in fact, all of them were opposed to Morales and actually in insidious ways were undermining what he was doing. Um, so, yeah, so I'd say the racket was is, is a is an on-the-ground attempt to puncture all the useful ideology which is pumped out to justify the system of imperialism which exists. Uh, I mean, there's, a, there's an interesting line I read of yours where you say that uh, you know, Western efforts to strengthen civilization, uh, civil society are really about strengthening the opposition. Um, yeah. And that's a, really, that's a really interesting sort of take on that because there's a, there's a huge effort goes into... Um, as you say, strengthening civil society. What could be, what could be more noble uh, and desirable than to have a vibrant civil society? But uh, but obviously the effort is directed at um, at societies with a, a left leaning government, and the aim is to exactly. strengthen precisely the forces of reaction in those countries. Um, exactly. Uh, so that's um, that's a gr- that's a great kind of summary, and um, I hope that our many. Dozens of listeners are going to rush out and buy the book. Um, um, now, what, what I think what, what would be interesting as well now would be to talk a bit about the reception of the book, both as, yep. it, as it were as a, as, a, as a published phenomenon, so you know reviews that were written and, and notices that were given in the in the press, and also as it were the unofficial behind the scenes uh, reception by former colleagues or other journalists. So. As far as I know, the book wasn't reviewed in the FT. Is that correct? No, that's correct. I did. I had a friend at the FT who said that he overheard someone um, at the FT, like a, some someone he described as a young buck uh, on the Beyond Bricks blog. Oh no, no, sorry, not the Beyond Bricks, uh, Alphaville. Oh yeah. Uh, and he overheard him saying to uh, one of his older colleagues, "Oh, that rubbish book. I, I, we should write a real um, hit piece or a hit review." Uh, and the older guy said, no, the much better way to do it is just to ignore it, which is what they did. And that, uh, I think that his probably his diagnosis of what the best or diagnosis was is probably the best cause because the fact that they didn't review it just made it, 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 it kind of was a damp squib to that extent in terms of no one would, no FT readers would have, will ever have heard of it. And if they'd really done a really bad review, it would have become a big deal. Would have become oh the FT are really either the FT's sour grapes over over this reporter who's exposing them or right. uh, 
oh, have you read this book that the FT hates? That is apparently an insider's account of how they how they how they justify exploiting the, the developing world. Or, do you know what I mean? It would, and and that is essentially what happened in the Guardian, which was a really nasty review by someone called Stephen Paul. Yeah, and that was that nasty review. Although obviously it pissed me off that I'd done all this work and then he just sort of uh, completely uh, lied about it and just did a hit job basically. Essentially, that review got it a lot. Got a lot of um, it whizzed around Twitter. People were getting quite angry about it. So, in fact, it, it, I, I think that the old guy at the FT was probably right. I think that if you want to just like, if you want a book to not do very well, you just ignore it rather than write uh, nasty things about it. Well, it's uh, the one. In, go on, sorry. I was going to say the 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 idea is to have a vibrant civil society and uh, like uh, you know a combative public debate about issues, except. When it comes to talking about big capital and its operations, so yeah. the fact that um, they ignored it, I think you're right. Strategically, was the best uh, was the best response. If they had done a hit piece on it, um, it would have it would have given they would it would have created as it were a dramatic structure, um, exactly. which their silence didn't do. Um, yeah. The 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 Guardian review was was striking. It seems to me in that. Um, it trotted out a lot of things about saying that your account was, uh, you know, I think the word you used was conspiriological. Um, yeah, they compared it to the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion in the first paragraph, yeah, which was nice. That's, that's nice. That's, that's, that's <laughs> good. Maybe in your kind of I thought that was quite a big gambit. I was uh, a little bit of respect for that. But, yeah, um, it's quite bold, isn't it? Um, yeah. But I suppose there is that interesting. There's an sort of response to attempts to describe the world, like, comprehensibly. Like, it's always possible to say, well, I think the fight's more complicated than that. Um, but you can, you can capture the, like, the fundamentals of, of a process. And as, as you describe the sort of neo-colonial process, um, like, you can capture the fundamentals of that. And the response, almost, almost like an unthinking response will be, oh, well, that's too simple. It can't be as simple as that, right? Um, and, and what was interesting, partly about the review, is because uh, I read, read the review and I read, read your response to it, um, he was kind of inventing a version of the book that fitted his case, right? Yeah. So he was quoting you kind of very partially in such a way as to, to sort of find incoherence or contradictions in the, in the book, which clearly aren't there. Um, yeah. but, they, but in a sense, they kind of had to be there because the world's not that simple, right? Yeah. The world can't be this this structure of a you know a, a global um, communicating capitalist elite who know what they're doing and are and are building ideological justifications for it uh, more or less consciously um, all the time. Um, so let's. I mean, were there were there people you'd work with or, or other people working this who came to you and sort of said off the record or on the quiet? And um, that's that's kind of right. Or I mean, were people willing yeah. to engage in that way? Yeah, I mean, I, I I do I did have friends at the FT who, well, I still do, that were really nice about it. But I wouldn't say their names, and they wouldn't they wouldn't publicly say that. But I think the the funny thing about the FT is uh, there's a hell of a lot of like lefty people there, just not in the upper echelons. Yeah. So it's kind of like a sort of a glass glass ceiling there. If you go in there, 
like so the, the sort of sub editors and the sort of lower down people doing the market reports and stuff they're quite they're, they're quite working class and then the higher you get up it just becomes more and more obvious that it's like private school Oxbridge so a lot of the people and, and the, actually the NUJ chapel at the, at the FT is the strongest of all the NUJ chapels in the whole of the British media um, and that's why yeah. there's, they, the, the, they got the best pay of any uh uh, newspaper so a lot so there's a real active left culture there just it's sort of repressed and it's not they're not allowed anywhere near the sort of columns that would actually influence opinion but um so they get they were very nice i didn't really get any i, I, I didn't stay in contact with anyone who was more sort of uh, famous and I'm, I'm sure they just hated it and thought it was awful but or just didn't read it yeah, yeah. i didn't really i didn't get any feedback at all which is quite interesting the the I got a lot of feedback from different people about the Guardian article, the Guardian reviews, just saying they thought it was awful. But they probably would say that to me. They probably, but um, yeah, I didn't really like it. Didn't there was no other reviews in any other newspapers. So to that extent, it was didn't become a uh, a, a, a critique of the media, which was actually uh, analysed in the media itself. It sort of was just pushed to the side, I mean, which I think is probably quite normal for, I was gonna for say, that, books. That's very common. Written. Yeah, that's very common. Yeah. I mean, certainly my experience with publishing on the media was that um, journalists would say, oh, this is really interesting, I'm going to talk to my editor about it, and then they come back and say, yeah, my editor says it's not a very good idea. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I think I, I think that that is, um, that there is quite a tight control over conversations about the media. I mean, what's one of the things yeah. that's interesting about that is that the media... Like journalists are always saying how much they like to talk about themselves, um, yeah. But actually, they they do they do like to talk about themselves. Yeah, they do, but they don't like to talk about themselves in in any in any way that's actually critical. Exactly. Like, they don't. Well, you they, saw that with this Owen Jones thing, right? Where he, where he said, I can't remember. He said something on Twitter about that the, the journalists are drawn from a certain that's right. class. Yeah, yeah. They all lost their shit, and we're all saying like, well, actually, I used to have an outside toilet when I like, and it was. When he was like, no, actually, your personal anecdotes don't make a difference to the fact that the, the stats prove that it's that there's a completely uh, uh, an economic elite which runs our media, and they hate any any kind of self criticism. And in fact, I think that's what like, I was just I'm just actually drawing up uh, the review now by Stephen Paul, and he says that he, he says he quotes me saying something about the system of indoctrination is so ingrained in the media and the university that it's near impossible to even divine it. And then he says, except, of course, for a few brilliant types, such as the author. Uh, so it's this idea that if, you, if you're, if you're uh, uh, critical enough to withdraw yourself from the system and analyse it, oh, you're, you're arrogant. This is another thing that I got. You're arrogant. You, you feel like you know what we're, what, how it works and we're just dupes. They hate all this shit. And he even, knew, he even uh, lied about something I said about dupes. I hadn't called journalists dupes, but he, he accused me of that. So I think that you're totally right. I think that they like talking about themselves unless it gets critical and then they freak, freak the fuck out. Anyone who doubts that journalists like talking about themselves should tune in to our sister show at the BBC, uh, The Media Show. Um, <laughs> they, they talk about themselves every week at great length. <laughs> yeah. But in, in, like, in heroic terms, I imagine. Yeah, well, yeah, well sort, of, yeah, sort of. If it's critical, it's like um, to do with like whether people's sort of readership or like, viewing figures are up or down or like, the markets and stuff like that. So it's, it's, it tends to be, you know, like, you know, there's a certain amount of criticism within within sort of polite, polite boundaries, yeah. 
Um, but well, they, they never had me on to talk about the BBC here. We're, so we're, all, we're all complaining about receptions of books. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. We might as well get it out there. We might as well get it out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we could be. Um, um, let's not lose the listeners, though. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I think that's good. No, um, so that brings us quite neatly on to another thing that I wanted to talk to you about about uh, in 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 the context of the business media. One of the things that we've noticed, Tom and I have talked a bit about uh, over the last few weeks and months, is that Corbyn's economic ideas are being discussed uh, with a degree of uh, like curiosity uh, in the in the Financial Times and the Economist. And I wanted to really ask, you know, what what your sense was of what's going on there? Um, yeah. Um... I think that yeah yeah I think that's that's correct that the the FT and the economists are taking uh, Corbynist Corbynism uh, or at least this economic um, iteration more seriously than the liberal press like the Independent or the Guardian. One reason for that is just they're more serious newspapers uh, and their readers need to understand nuts and bolts in a way that the Guardian um, and Independent readers, for example, don't. But I think also. They have moved on from a time when they thought they could just dismiss uh, Corbynism as this sort of weird uh, um, temporary blip that was going to be corrected, uh, which doesn't look like it. And, and they nearly did over uh, the right of the Labour Party nearly did overthrow Corbyn very very close. And in fact, I think without Brexit, Corbyn wouldn't have survived just because. Cameron would have would have been in power long enough to that the right could have got rid of him, but now they know that it's very likely that um, Corbyn and McDonnell are going to be running the country at some point, and they need to understand what they're going to do because that's the thing about the Financial Times and the Economist. Although I critiqued the Financial Times uh, in terms of the ideology it expounds, mm-hmm. the actual news in it itself is actually really good. I subscribe to the FT. I don't subscribe to any other paper because. When you're reading the stories, they actually have all the information you need to understand the uh, the issue, uh, and it's not so coloured by ideology. And I actually interviewed Chomsky for the FT about this sort of thing, and he says uh, he, the FT is his favourite paper, and I think he's correct when he says um, they the managers of the world read the Financial Times and they need to understand what is going on without the useful ideology that you find in other parts of the press. And he said the second thing is that they trust their readership. So the readers, they're not worried. It's not like The Sun, which is read by millions of people that might vote or might might vote either way or might actually go out on the street and protest. It's read by people in boardrooms, etc. So they don't need to be careful about what they say in terms of riling up anger against bankers or whatever it is. So they can be, there's, there's a degree of honesty they can have because they can trust their readership. So I think all these things come together to to produce uh, analysis of Corbynism, which is actually better than the liberal media. Uh, I have to say, recently I feel that the Financial Times and the Economist, although maybe good on uh, Corbyn uh, and his um, economic uh, output, I mean economic ideology and uh, policies, they had a good interview with John McDonald actually recently as well. I think generally they've actually they're actually drifting a bit rightward and more ideology is infecting their reporting. I don't know if that's because of the new owners of the Financial Times or um, or, or what it's about, but I have noticed since reading it that I, it's, I feel it's drifting a bit towards the Wall Street Journal side of things, which 
which is which is really isn't good because the Wall Street Journal has basically become a bit of a bit of a joke since Rupert Murdoch took over. Um, so although yes, good on Corbyn, I feel that there there is a drift towards something that's not quite as good as it, it was. Oh, yeah, I mean to be fair, yeah. we are sort of we're giving it credit for what is a fairly low bar, which is sort of doing <laughs> a handful of sort of um, professional pieces. <laughs> you know, yeah. it's all like. Um, and yeah, like I wouldn't say they deserve a medal, and you know we shouldn't um, forget the work of Janan Ganeshi there. Yes, well, tell our readers, Tom, about this is the man who famously said that um, I, something along the lines of, "I'm going to paraphrase here. I should have the actual quote ready." Um, it's good to do an analysis of Corbynism, and I've done that, but it boils down to the fact that his supporters are as thick as picture. <laughs> Yeah, it was yeah. famous. It was doing the rounds on Twitter for about six months or so. I think that is a good uh, summary of probably what a lot of the upper echelons of the FT feel about Corbyn and Corbynism. But I know it's, though, Matt, it's a weird thing about the Financial Times. I don't know if you've seen this, but like after the election, there was a breakdown of the um, political support of the readers of each newspaper, and the Times was all uh, sorry, the uh, Financial Times was almost evenly split Labour Conservative with a, a chunk of um, Lib Dems in there. So, really? Yeah, and so it's very interesting, you know, and I, I, I still, I'm still not sure why that is, because I've, I've asked people about it, including people who uh, at the Financial Times, and the assumption seems to be that um, the readership um, don't like Brexit and they're sort of relatively favourable to the idea of a sort of you know, counter-cyclical um, fiscal policy and those kinds of things. But I'm, yeah. I'm, I've not seen anything, actually, uh, anything empirical sort of commenting on that further or going into any more detail. It's an interesting, it's an interesting fact. I'd like to know a bit more about it, but I don't know how you'd, you'd find out, really. Yeah. Yeah. Presumably the people who work in marketing at the FT would be able to explain. Yeah, yeah. They did support Kinnock, I think. I think back in... Uh, 92. Yeah, that makes Editorial sense. Yeah. yeah, I think they backed, they backed, uh, they used to have like five people in their Labour desk. They, I mean, it was quite, in the 80s and like during Thatcher's, it was, although that was obviously the period of the Big Bang and in the city, I think that it was quite, it was a lot, lot more radical than it uh, than it is now. Um, That's interesting, I didn't know that about um, the sporting clinic, yeah. Well, I think also, like, they're not, the institution, really. Yeah, and there's, there's a, there are, there are rational people, uh, non-ideological people within the world of finance, which probably, and they probably see that what the Tories are doing is just even awful on, on the, for, for, for business. Yeah. Because there's no logic to this. It's like when I was in Haiti, essentially Haiti is a, uh, a paradise for foreign capital in terms of the legal structure. Like it's just been obliterated to allow to basically foreign investors are, are treated as kings there because yeah. of decades of um, but yeah it's a shit place to invest because they have completely destroyed the ability of the state to do anything mm. and so there's no roads there's no there's no degree of security so in fact capital uh, capital's ownership of Haiti has created a system has created an environment where capital can't even operate so there's that whole thing of like capitalism. Obviously, doesn't have doesn't have any. Uh, it's not got someone sitting atop the wave directing things. So, right. and it can become completely uh, counterproductive to that extent. Yeah, that's quite interesting actually because it, it makes you think of Erin um, Davis has a new book out um, called The Establishment, and his basic thesis is that 
you know, the, the British establishment has lost any sort of um, class cohesion or sense of its own collective interests and has just yeah. become this sort of, you know, rapacious elite, basically. Um, and I haven't, I haven't read it, so I don't know quite what I make of that, of that thesis yet. But it's, it's an interesting question when it comes to the Financial Times, you know, which is, should these institutions or did these, this institution in the, in the 1980s have a sort of relative autonomy, let's say, from the sort of more narrow interests of capital that was able to sort of articulate that class interest that has now been lost as, 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 the, um, as the media and other parts of the power structure, if you like, have become more instrumentalised. I mean, it's an interesting question, you know, like, uh, to, at what point do these institutions, in some sense, lose a sense of their own collective good because, you know, they're not able to maintain um, autonomy. There's another, I forget the name of the author now, but there's a, a, a Marxist, uh, sorry, Marxist, an American academic um, who has a similar sort of thesis for the, um, for the American business elite. He says that, yeah. you know, in the New Deal period, um, they were, there was enough of a sort of um, cohesive corporate um, mentality and class solidarity that they were able to articulate as shared interest, but that, that breaks down, which in some ways is counterintuitive to what you think about as, as a sort of uh, the, the current elite as being a very sort of tight um, and, and, and powerful group. But yeah. I suppose it also fits in with, um, with other things that we're seeing in terms of just sort of degeneration of the, the elites in the current period. I mean, for me, that was the big sort of revelation of the last five years, or ten years, really. God, it's been ten years. But, but these people just don't know what the fuck they're doing. <laughs> it's true. And it's true. It, I think Which is great. It's good, but like to people who sort of, um, I guess, Matt, you must be roughly my sort of age if you were sort of politicised by Iraq. But yeah. for people of our kind of age, um, there was a period where um, the state and and capital look to have this incredible hold over history and society, and actually the, the story of the last ten years has been something a bit different. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah. And social media. I mean, I know that everyone bangs on about this a lot, but social media has, I think, really democratized. Uh, well, obviously, that's that's a cliche, but. but the the, the I, I, I I've never been a massive fan of Twitter, but. The election of Jeremy Corbyn. I, I mean, not the election. Sorry, um, that's wishful thinking. But the 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 election last last year. I don't think that would ever have been able to happen without social media. And in fact, now when you see all these stories coming out uh, in the media about or in the legacy press about uh, a Czech agent, uh, anti-Semitism, and all that, it's fact checking in real time and pillory. And it has it's really powerful. Um, holding these people to account. Mm. Oh, um, while I remember, if, if listeners are interested in that book, um, it's uh, Mark Mizrachi, The Fracturing of the American Corporate Elite. That's the book I was thinking of. Um, he's a kind of, He's been doing sort of corporate network research for a long, long time. So I've not actually read the book, um, but I've read sort of reviews and um, interviews and stuff, and I, I mean to read it. It's, uh, it's supposed to be really good. Anyway, I, mean, I have to say though, I think that the, corp the corporate power is the big story of the era, and in fact, that they're getting more and more powerful. And in fact, that's the that's the book that myself and my colleague Claire, Claire Provost are working on at the moment is the mechanisms globally through which they exert power. And um, 
we travelled all over the world. We went to about 30 different countries looking at different ways that corporations that dominate um, governments and, and, and the hidden systems, for example, the investor state dispute settlement system, which is how they sue governments who do things they don't like. So if Egypt raises the minimum wage, they can take them to a court, uh, uh, which is part of the World Bank, and, and get uh, compensation. And we're talking about billions of dollars. Or if uh, they don't get a, a permit, an environmental permit for a mine in Guatemala, they, the company can take uh, Guatemalan government and get uh, millions of dollars off them. These kind of systems that no one really knows about, um, which operate uh, on a sort of below the surface, there's there's loads of them, and I don't and they are actually getting stronger and stronger in my opinion. And governments are becoming weaker and weaker. And I think this is part of the reason that we're seeing the rise of the far right and also the far left is because there's this sense that you can there's palpable in society that people can't locate where the power lies because right. the power's not the people on their TV anymore. And I think that so they're searching for answers of uh, oh, it must be my it must be uh, Eastern Europeans that it's their fault or there's this there's this real sense that we that, pe that people don't know where where the power lies and I think that that is because we've seen since the 70s especially this massive ramp up in the power of corporations who operate in ways that no one really understands yeah and yeah, yeah. And I, I agree I, mean, well, that, I think that, you know, we had a show a while back on conspiracy theory which was uh, and you know I, I we were talk we talked about this a bit um I mean, Dan and I both think that you know the attraction of conspiracy theory is, of course, that the world isn't as it's presented to us, and there are, in fact, forces in society in whose interests it's run, and they do, in fact, do things behind the scenes to, and publicly, I should say, as well, to serve their own interests. You know, yeah. and that that intuitive sense that people have is correct, and there is always one that attracts that kind of liberal condescension. Yes, yeah. and I think it's you know. Yeah, it's actually a bit of a bugbear of mine that any any effort to actually concretely describe a really existing um, elite or ruling class in concrete terms rather than abstract terms is always met with this stock response of conspiracy theory because it's seen as somehow not being sophisticated to talk about what's happening. I, I totally agree. It, it makes no sense because when you talk to a liberal or you talk to a right-winger about unions for example right. they understand very well that a union has a conscious uh goal of getting a better, better wages or better conditions for their workers but when you apply that same analysis to another to, to the global elite then you, you oh no they don't have any collective consciousness at all they don't, there's not anything that they all uh, would benefit from uh, in terms of policy changes etc it's this weird thing that it, it, we can apply uh, some sort of agency to lots of different institutions society but the elite no 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 they don't have any sort of common I like the way the same journalists get invited to the World Economic Forum <laughs> yeah you know it's just like you can go to the actual sort of uh, yeah meeting of the international elite and not notice that it's going on it's quite impressive <laughs> But why would you notice when you've got so many stars of stage and screen to look at instead? I mean, people. They, um, there's this sort of big, big data Twitter analysis of uh, attendees at the World Economic Forum, and a lot of them are the, you know, the big journalists. Yeah. Because um, there's always someone from the BBC, and then all of the elite press there as well, and you know they're always invited to chair panel panel discussions and whatnot. Yeah. That, talking about behind the scenes, Matt. So one of the things I've noticed is that a lot of these elite journalists do is the the kind of um, elite sort of shindigs, chairing um, debates, and uh, you know uh, they all do after dinner speeches and stuff like that, don't they? When yeah. I was um, 
when I was researching the BBC book, Peter Jay, who was the BBC's economic editor for a while, um, there was something in his files where it was, you know, it was an invitation from the investment banks. Will you come and do an after dinner speech? You know, we're very sorry. We can only give you four thousand pounds for one evening's work, um, but we <laughs> have some nice wine and food. It's just like, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it's like that stuff going on behind the scenes. You just think, hmm. Anyway, um, nice. Been, it's, it's a racket. We've been talking now for just over fifty minutes, um, and. I think that's a brilliant introduction to um, to your work, Matt. You mentioned briefly um, the project you're working on at the moment. What's the what's the title of that that new book? Does it does it have a title? Uh, we, we're not one we're happy with. The, the working title is Private Tyranny, which is uh, the idea that well, we're trying to get across the idea that in political uh, philosophy, since the Enlightenment, really, we've always uh, or analysed uh, tyrannical forces as being the state yeah. uh, and the locus of power has always been the state but yet that's a completely uh, wrong way to look at this, this, the world that we live in today and in fact the state is, in my opinion is increasingly irrelevant because even if they have uh, the technical power which they still have most of the decisions that they're making are being uh, decided by corporations anyway so this, there's this idea that we're trying to put out this idea that actually we're entering a new tyrannical global order, but the the, the, the tyrannical forces are corporations, not states. I mean, obviously states are they're still tyrannical states, but essentially what we call liberal democracy uh, is run by these. It's a, it's a quote from Chomsky actually, where he calls corporations private tyrannies, um, and it's he, he's. I think that when he mentioned it, he was talking about libertarians in the states. He was mm -hmm. talking about the contradiction of the two. Libertarians are all for freedom. But they're only from, uh, up for freedom from the state. They don't mind corporations doing whatever they want. And corporations, in fact, in terms of the structure, are actually more tyrannical than states. Because at least states, at least like in England and America, at least, you could, there, there's a degree of dem democratic accountability. You can get information from them. Whereas all corporations are responsible to their shareholders. So, yeah, private tyranny. And, and we've, we've, we've divided it up into four different... Um, uh, areas. So basically, as I mentioned, the ISDS system, whereby which is, in, we wrote actually a long read for the Guardian about it. It's a completely banana system, where which completely nullifies democracy, and no one knows about it. But it, it's a system that is enacted in in all these very uh, obscure investment treaties that are signed between countries, whereby corporations can sue uh, the state. Um, if the, if the state does things they don't like, so it effectively ensures company against uh, uh, expropriation and stuff like that. It's one of the only systems I've ever found in neoliberal capitalism that doesn't even have uh, a coherent justification for it. You know, like when you talk to people about different systems and they, they they'll they'll come up with like even austerity, they'll be they can give you good reasons. Although they're, they're, they're if you look into it, they're bollocks. Yeah, yeah. They can give you story. good reasons for yeah. austerity. When you talk to people who are benefiting from the ISDS system, they literally can't come up with a reason why it exists apart from we want to just uh, take money from poor countries when they do things we don't like. So it's quite interesting that set. So we, we, it opens with that. Right. Then we looked into um, aid, uh, which, uh, which is another word for development, which is another word for how the majority of humanity runs their economy. And development now and the aid system is being, is being used by corporations to penetrate um, economies all around the world so the world place like the world bank 
the Inter-American Development Bank, the Asian Development Bank, the African Development Bank, all these different development institutions which have huge amounts of money are basically greasing the entry of corporations to, into economies all around the world. Um, and we look very, very closely at a, 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 um, a body of the World Bank called the International Finance Corporation, which is the private sector arm of the World Bank, and they, they, they give uh, non-commercial loans to McDonald's and uh, KFC and places to go into places like Myanmar. So it's really corrupt. So we did that. Then we did land, which is um, how special economic zones, mm -hmm. uh, and how actual physical land is being chiselled off from states by corporations. Uh, and be, uh, special economic zones being the, the sort of emblematic example, but there's also private um, uh, communities, private, and there's even private cities in India. There's a whole privately built city which I went to called Navasa in in near Mumbai in India. Uh, and then the last one is is quite a well. Uh, it's, quite, it's a story that's actually been written about a lot, but it's it's about how. Uh, the resort to force, which has previously been seen as the, uh, the really the, the focus of, of a state's power, how it has the only legitimate resort to force, is now going to the private sector with uh, private military companies and security companies and all sorts uh, that are operating all around the world. And essentially, for, there's no reason why Pepsi and Coca-Cola, for example, wouldn't be in 50 years wouldn't have a war with their own armies in a place like Colombia over a piece of land. I don't, there's no regulation or anything that would stop that. So uh, it's, it's kind of a, it's, so that's the four sections and, and the argument basically is we're entering a, uh, a new epoch where corporations ha ha literally have tyrannical control over our world um, and it, it's very hard to fight back because people aren't even aware of the mechanisms which they're using to exert their power. So that's good tinfoil stuff for all your uh, listeners. <laughs> that's, that's right. And all that stands between them and global domination is a little chap called Jeremy Corbyn. In the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, exactly. And if you've got a tip for Labour, a lot of a lot of Labour luminaries listen to the show, you can imagine. Um, it yep. sounds like we should poach the sub-editors from the Financial Times uh, yep. and set up a proper newspaper. Um, yeah. Perhaps printed on a on a charming blue tinted paper, um, yeah. that can tell the truth about the global economy. Um, yeah, Matt, that's been a we've been a it's been a chat to you for an hour. It's been amazing. Yeah. I greatly appreciate you taking time to talk to us. Um, and Thanks. you know, it's there are very few, very few exposés written with first hand knowledge about the media, um, and you are to be congratulated for. Going undercover um, <laughs> and telling the truth about the financial press. So, thanks for that. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you both for your own work on the media, which has uh, guided my thinking as well. Oh, mm. mate, you're most welcome. Well, that is. Um, yeah. that's it's important. I think media reform and analysis of the media is more important now than ever because I think we are at a really. For me, England has always been a sort of. I've always gone to Latin America for my political kicks, and England's always been a pretty boring place, but now we have Corbyn, and we also have all these exciting new media things happening, like the Media Fund and uh, different alternative websites that are coming up, like Navarra and Canary and all these different ones, and, it's, and Evolve, and it's just, I think, like it's a super exciting time. We're, we're at the centre of something happening, which is kind of historic, historic. No, you're absolutely right, and I think it's, it, it, we are conditioned to think that, that political change happens elsewhere 
Um, yes. And that things are set in stone in this country. Um, and we are, we're, we're very, very definitely not in that place anymore. Things are no. changing. And um, the, the nature of that change is, is very much up for grabs. Um, yep. But um, we've got to first crush the centrist liberals. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's what Twitter's for, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's not just our work on the media you should be thanking us for, it's for, it's for mocking liberals on Twitter, because that's, that's the real front line that's of uh, social change, all this, my all these... I, I think Twitter's going to destroy the left just because no one does any work anymore. They just spend their <laughs> There is that as well. There is that as well. Alright, um, yeah, well thanks for that, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Terrific. Thanks again. Take care, bye. Bye.